0: The story is told of the teacher who gave her fifth grade class the following assignment. She said, students, I'd like you to go home tonight, and I'd like one of your parents to tell you a story that has a moral to it, and then when you come back tomorrow, I'll ask you to share that with the class. So sure enough, all the students went home with that assignment at hand and uh, came back the next day and began to share these stories that either the mom or the dad are both told that had a moral to it. So four or five stories later, the teacher looks at one of the students and says, Tony, do you have a story to share that has a moral to it? And he said, oh, yeah, I do. And she said, okay, stand up and tell the class. And he said, well, my daddy told me a story last night About my grandpa, and it's about when he was in World War II. And grandpa was a pilot, and his plane got hit, and he was going down. And all he had with him was a bottle of whiskey, a pistol, and a knife. Grandpa bailed out of the plane. He was so scared, he drank the whole bottle of whiskey. And he sure enough lands in the middle of 20 enemy troops. He pulls out his pistol and he shoots 15 of them, the enemy with with his pistol until he ran out of bullets. Then he pulled out his knife and he stabbed to death four of them until the blade broke. And then the last one he strangled with his own bare hands. And everybody in the room was kind of like you are. They were like, what kind of story is this? And she said, Tony, did did your daddy tell you? What was the moral to the story? And he said, oh, oh, there was a moral to it. Daddy said he learned from that story never to mess with grandpa when he's been drinking. (laughs) You know, there are times in life where it is possible to miss the point or the moral of the story if we're not careful to take a good hard look at all the facts or the evidence. You know, uh, as most of you know, we've been going through the uh, the eyewitness account of the life of Jesus as seen through Dr. Luke's eyes. And uh, one of the things I continually remind myself as I go through the scriptures is that, you know, all scripture is inspired by God, literally God breathed. And it's not a matter of one's own interpretation that God has taken these 40 different authors of his word and he has through the Spirit of God, moved in their hearts to write down verbatim the words that God would have them write and at the same time utilizing their own distinct personality, their own distinct experiences, and their own perspective as far as, you know, that certain flavor that they have as they're looking at the events that transpire, all of it controlled by the Spirit of God so that what we have is without error the very words of God in written form. And so, as we go through this, you know, God uses this unique perspective. And so, every time that I go through the Bible, and particularly as I read a parallel account that you'll find in the other Gospels, it's always important to read all of those accounts to get a real good overview of what's going on in the passage that we have before us. For example, today, as we continue in our study, we learn of the events which took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, and in this passage, among other truths, we discover what Dr. Luke identifies as God's remedy for fear. And so if you've got your Bible with you, open it to Luke chapter 22, and we'll pick up the account at verse 39, where we find these words. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. and and when he had arrived at the place he said to them pray that you may not enter into temptation and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray saying father if thou art willing remove this cup from me yet not my will but thine be done now an angel from heaven appeared to him strengthening him and being in agony he was praying very fervently And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike them with the sword? And a certain one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. You know, as I've studied this passage, I discovered something about Jesus' humanity that, quite frankly, I'd never seen nor appreciated. You know, in the garden, Jesus was overcome with a fearful dread of death. And to get a better feel for that, Mark records in his passage or his account of this same event, if you'll go back to Mark chapter 14, you'll notice that Mark records these words which have a much stronger emphasis for us, but as part of this parallel passage. In verses 32 through 34. We read this in Mark's account. He said, and they came to the place called Gethsemane, which Luke doesn't mention the place. He said it was just the place that they had come to on a regular basis. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be, notice these words, very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. So we're told that this place called the Gethsemane means oil press. It was a olive garden, and it was a place that Jesus came to on a regular basis, as we'll learn from this account and the other accounts. It was a place that he would go to get away from the crowds. And to understand in, in this particular area, as in, the, in our area, for example, if you go down toward the beach you'll notice that there's not a lot of open area, there's not a lot of parks or gardens or things like that, because real estate is so expensive. And it's really unique if you've ever gone like to Corona Del Mar or somewhere like that, and you see a house that basically has two lots with the lot next to it, basically you know used as a garden or you know, as a lawn area, and it's kind of like it stands out. Well, the same thing in Jerusalem in the surrounding area, there's a garden that was there, this place called Gethsemane that, you know, we have like a replica of it on our property when you go down near the lake where the olive trees are. And it was a place that Jesus on a regular basis to get away from the crowds, to get away from the hustle bustle. And I hope and I pray that this facility that God has given to us will become that kind of place to many of us. Where, you know, you're five minutes off of the freeway and 220,000 cars a week are driving by on the 91, but yet we can drive off of this, this road and come up into this facility and spend some quiet time and get away from the hustle and bustle and everything that distracts us from focusing on, on the Lord, where God says, you know what, you need to be still at times because then you'll know that I'm God. You need to slow down. You need to get away from everything that distracts you from the things that are important, those things that are eternal. You know, and all of us need to do that because every one of us know how busy our schedules are. It's just constant. It's, you know, you know you're taking your kids there or here or another place and club sports and, you know, and school activities and, you know, and, and not to mention all the other things that we like to do and hobbies and things like that. You know what? And God says, Chuck, you know, there are times in life where you and all my people need to just Step away from all of this and just let me talk to you. Let me have your undivided attention. And I hope that this facility that God has provided for us will will accomplish that for many of us. You know, to be able to put some tables and chairs and things and spread them out through the facility where you can sit down by the lake and you can sit in the garden and you can just allow God to speak to you away from all the hustle and bustle of everything that goes on. Well, see, Jesus had this place. And it was owned probably by a wealthy person that had this garden. And he went to this garden on a regular basis to spend time alone with his father. And we're told that at this moment in Gethsemane, in this garden, that he was so so distressed. The words, he was very distressed. He was very troubled. He was deeply grieved to the point of death. And one of the things that I hope that all of us are very careful as we read into the, read the Bible is that we don 't read into the Bible those personal subjective uh, feelings that we may be going through at our own time of, of trouble or distress or whatever, for example, you know as I go through this continual you know, uh, ride on the cancer coaster you know and the ups and downs and all that goes with it i 've got to be real careful that when i read god 's word that i don 't read into it what I want God to say. And that I step back and say, God, tell me what you want to say and speak to me. And, and you know what I'm saying? That we don't read into it what we want it to say. And we've all been guilty of that. We want something so badly that we begin, and I, and I deal with this on a regular basis now because God has brought into our life people who are struggling with physical ailments. And he's opened this door for ministry, uh, you know, through this cancer that I'm going through. And we run into people and, and, and they want every verse that talks about healing to deal with physical healing. And, and the reality of it is is that when I hear people share these things, my heart breaks because, you know what, those verses talk about spiritual healing. They talk about a bigger picture, a grander picture, the, 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 the greatest picture of all. By his stripes, yes, by his stripes, we are healed. We are, we are healed from our sin. We are, we, are, we are freed from the wrath and the judgment of God. But those who trust in Christ, you know, we are, we are, we are given everlasting life. But it has nothing to do with physical healing. Now, maybe God's will is that we are physically healed at times of our different physical ailments. But at the end of the day, most often it's because we read into it what we want it to say, and we don't allow God to speak to us. So now, as I'm reading through this passage, I ask the question, what does it mean? What do these words mean that Jesus was very distressed, that he was deeply troubled, that his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death and it bears the element of surprise or astonishment in those original languages. In other words, Jesus was horrified as he was astonished at his imminent death that it evoked this statement, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I think it's hard for us to understand this, but his fear of death and all that that, that that entailed could well have killed him when he understood what lay ahead. It was like as he was praying and, and it was, oh, the, God the Father revealed to him the details of what was coming. And he was so horrified. He was so astonished. He was so deeply troubled and distressed by what was about to take place that just the thought of his death was enough almost to kill him. And this is the word picture that we have, and it's a very graphic one. And frankly, to me, it's quite surprising. And the reason it was so surprising is because as we've gone through Luke's account of the life of Jesus, up until this point, if you think about it, in Luke's narrative, Jesus continually exhibited that he was both fearless and in total control. He withstood the relentless temptations in the wilderness of Satan by challenging him with the word of God. We saw that he silenced a screaming demonic with an unfazed, basically, be quiet. We saw that he was out in the boat and the storms were taking over and his disciples were freaking out that they were going to drown and they they woke him up in this fear and Jesus stood up and said, be still. I like that. Be still. And everything stopped. Stopped. And so as we look at all these different events and as he was raising people from the dead, and as he was healing the, the infirmity of all those of every kind of disease that was known to him, then he would stand and he would preach with authority and he would, you know, he, he laid out the six woes to the Pharisees, the scribes, and the elders, and basically could say, Woe to you, hypocrites, and he just laid it out. And he was he was fearless, he was courageous. And so when I'm reading through scripture, and here's this account of Jesus as he looks forward to his death, I'm thinking that Jesus will go to his death, kind of like uh, the story that I read of Joachim Muret, who was a marshal of France and king of, of Naples under Napoleon. He was sentenced to be executed by his captors, and Guy Talais writes the story of his death. And, I, and I'm like, wow, this, this, I thought this was how Jesus would handle it. It says, on the day of his death, he took a shock of his hair and he cut it off. And he asked one of the officers to enclose it with a letter he had written to his wife, Napoleon's sister, and his children, who were then all living in Tri- Trieste. Then Murat took off his watch, and he gave it to the officer as a gift. He said, then he, then he looked at this, and he, before he parted with the watch, he had opened up a lid that was on it. And in this lid was a tiny carnelian on which a portrait of his, of his wife was carved. And Muret held tightly this chanelion in the palm of his hand as he followed the soldiers out of the courtyard where they were preparing to kill him. The sergeant of the firing squad offered Muret a chair, but Muret said he wanted to die standing up. The sergeant offered to cover up his eyes with a cloth, but Muret said he wanted to die with his eyes open. He said, I do, however, have one request. He said, I have have commanded in many battles and now I would like to give the word of command for the last time. Muret then said, you know, as he he laid this out, the sergeant granted his wish. Muret then stood against the wall of the castle, called out in a loud voice, soldiers, form line. Six soldiers drew themselves up to within 10 feet of him. He said, prepare arms, present. The soldiers presented their muskets at him. Aim at the heart, save the face, he said with a smile. And then after he had held up his hand to look for the final time at the carnelian showing the portrait of his wife, he issued his final earthly command, fire. I read that and went, wow, that's a brave dude. I mean, that's a pretty brave guy. You know, and, 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 you know, as you read this, you know, all the, the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, you read this and you go, you know, you would anticipate that Jesus would never have been afraid of anything. And yet, from this passage, we learn that he had this fear of his imminent death that was so great that it could have killed him. And I know some people, you know, some of you are getting nervous. It's almost like blasphemous. But I want you to understand why. Because scripture gives us the reasons why Jesus had this dread. Because see, our Lord knew that the wages of sin is death. And that he was about to pay that wage in full. See, our Lord knew that death is a result of the judgment of God and he was about to bear the judgment of God in full to those who would believe and trust in him. Our Lord knew that he who knew no sin, Jesus, would become sin on our behalf. And the word of God clearly teaches this. See, our Lord knew that death would bring on him the wrath of God and that he would propitiate that wrath to the fullest. See, Jesus had a dread of death because he knew the price he was about to pay. And in his humanity, there was such a dread and deeply troubled soul that he almost could have died before the cross killed him because he knew what lay ahead. I want you to recognize and understand what I'm saying because when we put all this together, there is an important application for all of us as we get to the end of this passage. It's a critical application. See, the Bible doesn't leave us hanging as to, gee, why was Jesus afraid? Because we know why he was afraid. But we also know that he understood completely what he was about to do, and he did it anyway. Muret, as courageous as he was, did not take on the sins of the world Himself, Muret, as courageous as he was, did not take the full judgment of all of mankind's sin upon himself when he were issued those words. Fire. See, we need to recognize and understand that this remedy for fear is found in the example that Jesus gives as he goes into this garden to spend time with his father. And he gives this reason, as we look at our outline, he gives the following reason for prayer. It says, when he arrived at the place, he said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, we know for Jesus' warning to Peter from this warning, that he and all the others would give in to fear as the evening would later reveal. He knew what was coming, and this is going to be a tough night for everybody. And he tells us by word and by example that God's remedy for fear is prayer. When you're afraid, pray. When you're troubled, pray. When you're deeply distressed, You know, find that quiet place and go to God and pray. And that's what Jesus did. And that was his example that he laid for us. And we know this because in the book of Hebrews, if you want to turn ahead a few books, in Hebrews chapter 4, and verses 15 through 16, we read these words, "...for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses." But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And if he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, it is not blasphemous to say that Jesus was tempted to be afraid. God knows we are all afraid at times of our life. There are things that scare us, frighten us, immobilize us, paralyze us. There are times in our life where we are so afraid we don't know what to do, and God says his remedy for fear is pray. Just as Jesus experienced that dread and that distress and that fear of his impending death, and he went into the garden and he prayed, so you and I, when we are afraid, must pray. That is his answer, that is his remedy. The ailment, the sickness is fear. And Dr. Luke says, God's remedy, is prescription is prayer. He says, pray. He says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in our time of need. How do we grow, draw close to the throne of grace that we may find need? Through prayer. God, here I am, Lord. As was sung, I'm on my knees again. Amen. You know, I'm seeking your forgiveness, and I'm not only seeking forgiveness, but I'm seeking to understand your will for my life. And as we'll see, that is exactly what Jesus prayed. God, what is your will? What is your will? Back to Luke's gospel, Jesus was tempted in all things, and this includes being afraid, yet without sin. God's remedy for fear is prayer, and as we pray, we worship God and we don't have the idle time to think about the lies of the enemy as we pray we are in effect taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ from Jesus's prayer we learn several things about his relationship with the Father and how we should pray first of all notice this in verse 41 we're told he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray the Bible says that he knelt down in this particular account, Mark's account says he fell to the ground. He fell on his face, Matthew writes. And so from these, this, this composite of these uh, pictures, we have this, this very clear understanding that Jesus prostrated himself before God, and with a spirit of humility, he went to the Father and he began to pray. And how I thought, how challenging is that for us in our culture today? that sometimes puts God on on um, almost like a servant level. You know, God exists and is available for us, and we can go to him and demand what it is that we want, and he has to do whatever it is that we ask. And I think, well, that's such a tragic lie because as I see, even Jesus himself, the son of man, the son of God, equal with God, co-equal with God, but, you know, but submissive to the Father, he, he prostrates himself before the Father, and in humility, he falls on the ground and on his face, and he goes to God the Father in prayer, and it has a, a lot to do with an attitude that isn't one that we have in our culture today. Listen, folks, he is God, and we are not and for us to enter into his presence with, with requests is a gift that God gives to you and I because of the work that Jesus has done. But to go into his presence and demand anything of him violates everything that we know scripture to be teaching and that is that you and I are to be walk humbly with our God. To do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. We don't dictate to God Anything. And when I am afraid, and as I've gone through this roller coaster ride, and my wife knows, and my family knows, every time we get some different words, and every time this doctor says that, and another doctor says this, and and, and then we begin to to have this dread, or this distress about this impending death that may come as a result of my cancer. You know, I learned from this passage, God's remedy for fear is, go to God in humility, and seek His face, spend time with Him, and it's amazed, as as we will see, and you will be amazed as well, as you apply this truth that you can walk away with this infused courage that comes from spending time in the presence of God and in his word. See, Jesus in humility went before the Father and this attitude is one that must be in ourself that existed in Jesus who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In Philippians 2, it says, have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. What was the attitude that he had? He humbled himself before the Father. And we need to humble ourselves as well. See, Luke once again points out the intimacy of Jesus' relationship with God, where he said he prayed, Father, Or Abba, Father. You know, to go to him as Jesus instructed us and the disciples earlier and say, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, our Abba, our Daddy who is in heaven. One of the great roles of every father is to protect his children. One of the things that every wedding that I do that I tell every husband is that, you know what, God took a bone from Adam's side, from his rib, under his heart, so that this man will love his wife, and under his arm, so that he will protect her. One of the greatest responsibilities you and I have, as men who are married, is to protect our families, and our children. And God knows this, because he's our example. So when Jesus goes to his father, Father, I know that one of your greatest desires is to protect your children. And as your son, I come to you and I look for protection from about what's to happen. What a wonderful thing that is. And so as he looks at this, it reminds us of this great love. Luke had already written to us where he said, how much more will your father in heaven give to those to whom he loves? He's not gonna hold anything back from you and I. He has given us his best. He has given us his son. For God so loved the world that he gave, sacrificially, his only begotten son. He's not gonna hold anything back from us that will protect us. See, Jesus in his prayer also reveals the trust that he has for his Father. See, in Mark's account we read that Jesus knew with God all things were possible and therefore he can trust him in whatever he chose to do. Think about this. He says, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. God, let me ask you something. Do you believe that God is limited in what he can do? I mean, do you think there are some, you know, I I hear this and it it kinda troubles me sometimes, but I hear people say this and and maybe you've said this, but it's kinda like, well, I don't wanna bother God with this little thing because I don't wanna burn up my favors with them and I'm gonna save it till the big things, you know, hey, I don't want to bother them with these little things that are going on, because if I ever get cancer, like this pastor has, then I'll wait till, and then I'll start asking them about stuff. You know, it's kind of like, well, you misunderstand something. What is big to God, and what's little to God? We may think some things are big, and some things are little, or vice versa, but the bottom line is this, to God, nothing's big. He's God. And so it's like, what do you, you know, hey, go to him with everything. And there's nothing in the Bible that says you can only come to me so many times during the course of your lifetime. Oh, used it up, man, 16, I already used it all up. Oh, man, I hope you don't live long, you know. It's like, what what is that? There's nothing the Bible says that we've used up all of our favors or all of this mercy and all of this grace that we're gonna find in our time of need. See, Jesus trusts the Father, and the reason that he trusts him is the same reason you and I should trust him, and that's this. Is there anything our God cannot do? I mean, when our kids were little, one of their favorite songs to sing, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. I love that. And it was, I used to watch him walk around the house and do that. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And, you know, and it's like, that's awesome. And, you know, and, and so I get in my office when nobody else is looking, and I just share this with you today. <laughs> so when I start struggling with, well, what can God do? It's like, you know, tumors. <laughs> That's nothing. I don't care how big they are, or how little they are. It's nothing to God. What are you struggling with? Financial problems? Pfft, nothing. We're talking about a God who holds the universe together while we sit here. We're not getting f- thrown all over the place. I mean, this isn't hard for him. And so when Jesus goes to his father, he can trust him implicitly because he realizes, you know what, if there was any other way that this cup of suffering could pass from him, he knows his God loves him, his God wants to protect him, and he would do that if there was any other way. But if there isn't any other way, then yet not my will be done, but yours be done. And he is in total submission to the will of God in his life. And that's what we see. Lord, if there's any other way, God, if there's any other way that you can reach people for your kingdom, if there's any other way that I can be an effective, a more effective communicator of your truth, If there is any other way that we can get CDs out to all the people that we sent them to and you can do it without me having cancer, that's okay with me. But not my will be done, but yours. And if this is your will, then you know what? I'm cool with that. Why? Because I trust you. Because it's not that you can't remove cancer. It's just that you choose not to if that's your will. And I'm all right with that. Why? Because you're God and I'm not. And we're all okay with that. Are you okay with whatever it is that's causing fear in your life? If not, I'll guarantee you it's because you haven't got to that point of trusting God and in total submission of him. You have not got to the point Jesus did as he prayed in the garden that he said, you know what? It's all right. Not my will be done, but yours. And see, I want you to understand this because in all the accounts put together, it's a wonderful thing because what we learn is that Jesus becomes totally dependent upon God. You know, and the Bible says that when a person cries out, not my will, but yours be done, It is almost as if it's the cry of a conqueror because 1 John 2, 17 says, the man who does the will of God lives forever. It's as if you're standing in front of the firing squad and you say, ready, aim, fire. You know why? Because the man, the woman who does the will of God will live forever. And what is the will of God? that you believe upon him, Jesus, whom he has sent. That is the ultimate will of God for every human being that we repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the person who does that will live forever. It's awesome. We can have victory over fear. We can have victory over the temptation to question God. When we go to God in prayer, as we learn Jesus' prayer was heard and it was denied because there was no other way. This was the predetermined will of God. By the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you people turned Jesus over to the hands of godless men so that he would be crucified, he would die, he would be buried, and he would be raised again according to the scriptures, it is God's will. See, but what was interesting to me is that it was three different times Jesus went back to his father and said, if there's any other way, will this cup pass from me? Luke records one. Matthew and Mark tell us that there was three different times that he got up from prayer and he went back to his disciples and they were sleeping. He went back to prayer again and he began to pray, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. See, you know, there was, there was a persistence that was there, but there was also a time of acceptance and submission and he began to look at it and said, you know what, not your will be done. Not my will be done, but yours. And notice this, the dependence upon God and, the, and an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. You know, Luke's the only one that records this and there's a lot of activity about angels in the, in the, uh, the book of Acts, which is also written through Luke. And so he records something that helps us to understand and, and here's the application for you and I today. And as I've read this, I realize, you know what, In every life, there will be a Gethsemane. In every life, there will be a time in our life where we will be so deeply distressed and troubled by something that is going on that it'll cause us to to fall upon our knees before God. And I want to tell you something. And in every Gethsemane, there is also an angel from God. You know, God will... Minister to us, as he did Elijah. God will minister to you at that moment in time when you're so deeply troubled and distressed and your heart, you know, you're almost, the the thought of what's about to happen is almost greater than the thing that's gonna happen to where it will almost kill you itself. In every life, there's a Gethsemane and in every Gethsemane, there is an angel who is sent from God to strengthen us if we have gone to him to find mercy and need in our time of great despair. Isn't that great? And that's what this, you know, this, this example, as we see this, notice this. You know, before, before I move on, you know, let me ask you a question. It's a very personal one, but that is this. Are you truly at peace with God's will, his purposes, and his plan in your life Or are you still struggling with not your will be done, God, but mine? See, God will do everything that he can to get us to the point of total dependence upon him. He wants to eliminate that pride and that arrogance from our heart that says, you know what, God? Not your will be done, mine be done. You do what I want you to do. You're here to serve me. And God says, Chuck, until you realize that you're here by my grace and by my mercy, and you're here to serve me, you will never have peace in this lifetime. Ever. In any circumstance, and in every situation. So. We need to accept the will of God. Now notice the reaction that Jesus experienced while he was in agony. We're told that he was praying fervently and this gives us an understanding about the second and the third time that Jesus continued to pray. He was praying in agony and he was praying fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I mean, can you imagine, even after he was strengthened, the struggle continued because he, was, he still had to live out the experience and die for the sins of the world, and, you know. And sadly, while this intense battle was going on in his life, the people that were there—hey, we got your back covered—they <laughs> were sound asleep. But they were going through their own struggles. The Bible says they, they were sound asleep because they were in distress themselves. Their sorrow. Think about the night they had gone through. First of all, they ate a lot, and all of us know if you eat a lot, it's really tough to stay awake. You know, it's like man—they ate a lot at the Passover. Then they found out one of them was going to betray him. Then they found out their leader, Peter, was going to be a guy who denied even knowing Jesus. Then they're walking out into the garden, and now you've got to imagine all these things are going through their mind, and they were really troubled by what was happening, and every time Jesus went to them, they were sleeping. And he said, you know, instead of sleeping, you need to be praying. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. You better be praying because when you're not praying, you've given the devil idle time to jump in and stir up things in your life that, you know what, in prayer, he doesn't have a chance to do. And you're going to see by their reaction of what happened and Jesus' rebuke of these people as we look at this and the response that he gives to those who are in the garden that, you know what, he was saying, hey, fellas, you know, there's a time to sleep, there's a time to rest, but now's not that time. You better be watching and you better be praying because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak and when you're not praying, it's going to open the door for you to do something stupid and that's exactly what happened. Notice this says that when he went on, he says, while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude came, and the one called Judas, one of the 12, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. And to get a real good understanding in John chapter 18, verses three through 11, read it when you have a chance, but John's account tells us this, that Jesus, after he had prayed to the Father three times, after he recognized this is God's will for his life, when he was in complete submission to the plan of God in his life, totally dependent upon God, he heard a commotion in the background and Jesus got up and he walked with the bravery of a muret in times times 20 million times he walked out of the garden on his own up to those who were coming to arrest him and this is now what we see happening in Luke's account where he said he heard them coming to him and you know what Jesus didn't hide behind a tree, Jesus didn't hide behind a rock, he wasn't afraid anymore because God's remedy for the fear in his life was that he infused him with the courage that comes only from God he stood up and he walked and he accepted his destiny as the word of God tells us and he walked right into the hands of his captors and he tells us that he. Said, Said to Judas, Oh, Judas, are you about to betray me with a kiss? And his first rebuke was Judas. And let me tell you something about this picture that it'd be easy to miss. There is a wonderful picture of God showing us how to love our enemies. Because what he's saying to Judas was, you know what? I'm going to tell you what you're about to do. And if you weren't so hard-hearted and callous towards God, God's word always reveals and exposes guilt in our life. So what he was saying to Judas was, are you about to betray me with a kiss? Now, if Judas hadn't gotten so hard and callous towards God, that should have raised the hair on the back of his neck. He should have looked at Jesus and went, "How, how do you know that? because this deal that I cut was in secret. This deal that I made and negotiated, nobody else was around and you weren't around. I knew you would be here because this is a place that you like to come. I knew the multitudes wouldn't be with you because you like to get away from them. I knew that we can find you in the garden and we can get you and have you arrested without a big confrontation because I knew that this was the ideal place to have this happen. And Jesus said, are you about to betray me with a kiss? And at that point, Judas should have fell on his knees and repented before God and agreed with him that yes, that was the sin that I was about to commit but thank you for warning me, thank you for loving me, thank you for continuing to reach out to me. And God does that to you and I over and over and over again. But there are times in our life where we have chosen to do wrong before God, and we've gotten so far down that road that when the word of God exposes our sin, we don't even see it, we don't even feel it, we don't even know it anymore. In the back of our head, the hair that should be standing up by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we miss because we've become so hardened in our sin. God help us to never become so callous towards God that when God reveals in his word truth that we don't say, my Lord and my God. You're right. Judas saw everything. He heard every word Jesus preached. He saw every miracle and every sign that Jesus gave pointing to him as Savior and Messiah. Messiah. Even at the Passover, he was right next to Jesus, and and, and, and Jesus was warning him then, don't do this. Are you about to betray me with a kiss? Yes, you are, aren't you? One last time to try to reach him with God's love. There will never be anybody who goes to hell that doesn't choose to go there because they have rejected the grace and the mercy of God. I have tried to get your attention over and over and over again, but you refused me. Be gone from me, for I never knew you. Is God trying to get your attention? Don't, don't grow cold and hard. Are there things going on in your life that you know are wrong before God, and the Spirit of God continues to tell you, listen, stop doing that. I can remember days in my life before I came to know Christ that I would negotiate with God. Oh, God, if this consequence doesn't happen, I promise I'll stop doing that. You know, it's always making a deal. God, you know, if you cut me slack here, I promise that won't happen. And you know, and sure enough, you don't get caught or you don't get in trouble or the consequences weren't where you thought they were. And you go, hey, back right at it. See, we need to recognize and understand that things are wrong. Listen to me, because God says they're wrong. It breaks my heart in our culture today to hear people talk about, well, something's wrong because there's consequences. No, something is wrong because God says it's wrong. And if you're waiting for consequences, and they don't happen like you think that they should, and in the time or the manner in which you expect them to happen, then you are wrongly convinced by the enemy that therefore what you did must not be wrong because what you thought would happen didn't happen the way you thought it would, so therefore you can continue to sin before God with immunity, and God says, no, it's only because of my grace and my mercy that you haven't experienced what could have been the consequences, and I'm giving you another chance to repent, If you're in that place, take advantage of God's offer for amnesty. He rebuked Judas, and Judas didn't take him up on the offer. He goes on and he rebukes the disciples. He says, and when those who were around him saw what was going on, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Remember that. They were all excited because they had two swords it's like, hey, man, got to use him, you know? You got, you, got, you got a sword, you got to use it on something. And so before, any, before Jesus even answered, Peter took out the little sword that he had, it was more like a knife, and he cut off the ear of Malchus, the, 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 uh, the servant of the high priest. And, you know, good thing he's a fisherman because he wouldn't have lasted a long time as a soldier. If your first jab is to cut off someone's ear, Unless you're saying, watch, I'll show you how good I am. I'm going to chop his ear off first, then I'll carve him up in other ways. It was like, no, he was trying to kill the guy, and he cut off his ear. And Jesus went, no, stop this. And the other account says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. And they were so quick to want to interact, or somehow or another to do, you know, Try to understand how, how just crazy it is sometimes that we see, that, that, that we try to help God. Peter had already been told once when Jesus told him that the Son of Man is going to go into Jerusalem, turned over to the scribes, elders, chief priests, gonna suffer, he's gonna die, he's gonna be ra- you know, raised again, and, you know, and they'll continue on in Galilee. And Peter said, that's not gonna happen to you, we're not gonna let it happen to you, no one's gonna hurt you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you know what? You've set your mind on the things of man and not on God. This is God's plan. Okay? Now here, this is God's plan. Jesus is in complete dependence upon God. Not my will, but yours be done. There's no other way, so I'm accepting this. I'm walking out to those that I will be handed over to. And God, your plan is going to continue just as the word of God, the scriptures tell us. Peter, once again, doesn't want God's plan to come to fruition, so he decides, I'm going to violently stop what it is that's taken place. And Jesus said, stop this. And what I learned from this is that for years, the church of God, for lack of a better way to put it, God's people have tried to violently, violently Push under the culture of their time God's agenda. God, God says, reach the world with the word of God. If we're to reach people with the gospel, we're to love our enemies as ourselves. If we're to reach the world with God's word, we're to use the sword of the Spirit, not the sword that comes out of a saber. And God's spirit will penetrate the hearts of man. And we'll be able to reach people for God's kingdom with God's weapon, the the, the word of God, the sword of the spirit. This is a perfect example of how when the church tries to jam truth into the hearts of those who are not willing to accept it, the danger and the damage that comes from it. Jesus, in his act of compassion, takes the man's ear and sticks it back on his head. And you know what? I gotta believe that there have been centuries and generations where God has come behind his church and has had to repair the damage that has been done by people who are trying to force God's truth on others. There is no room in God's kingdom to violently demonstrate the love of God for people, period. We must use the word of God, the sword of the spirit, to reach the hearts of men in such a way that no human metal sword ever could. Jesus in his act of compassion puts the guy's ear back on and says, man, what are you guys thinking? You still don't get it. And now he rebukes the religious leaders. He says in verse 52 and 53, and Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple, elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? Again, his word just penetrates their hearts. If they were listening to what he said, they had to go, wow, that's true, huh? He said, you know, while I was with you daily in the temple, You didn't lay hands on me. I mean, think about this, fellas. I mean, you've had more than ample opportunities to arrest me anytime that you want. And now you've come out with clubs and swords like you're gonna have this big confrontation. It's like the only reason that this is happening is because this is God's plan. This hour has been given to you. And, you know, in the other accounts, it says, you know, Jesus said, look, You think I need your puny little sword? I can call 12 legions of angels to be at my side in a moment. One of them was just there strengthening him as he was praying. It's like, God doesn't need our help to beat up people for the cause of Christ. I mean, it's like, hey, use the word of God and live a godly life and, and love people as you would love yourself and love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and, you know, and live in such a manner that's worthy of our calling so that when people see our lives, they're attracted and they want to know our Savior instead of trying to beat them up with the gospel. See, he's just saying, hey, you know what? This is only happening because this is the predetermined plan of God. There is no other way. This is God's way. And so in closing, an application, what do we learn? Some, several things that I've learned personally, and that is, you know what? God's remedy for fear is prayer. And it's more than content. It's entering into God's presence and experiencing Him, His mercy and His grace in our time of need. And after we've spent time with God in prayer, I was telling one of the guys this morning, it's like, you know, when I'm troubled by things that happen in this lifetime, and I get alone in my office and I open God's Word and I pray and I read the Word of God, it's like when I get up, I'm, I'm a new person. You know, it's like I'm born again, again, and again, and again, every time, you know, I spend time in the presence of God. And you walk away with this newfound strength and this newfound courage that comes because you've spent time in God's presence. And I can picture Jesus getting up off of his knees after praying in that garden and just walking out to his captors and with the complete courage and strength that only God can give to walk ahead and to claim his destiny to redeem this world to himself. And if you're ever afraid, pray. Get into the Word of God and immerse yourself in His presence and watch what God does in your life. I also learned from Jesus to be submissive to God's will. You know, Jesus never deviated from the Father's will. In this example of His prayer, as an as example for you and I, but earlier He had said, I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who has sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Do you? Do you always do what pleases God? We learn about temptation that there's no temptation that can overtake us that's not common to man, but God is faithful who with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that we're able to endure it. How can we escape the temptation of being afraid? How can we escape the temptation of denying God? How can we escape the temptation of taking matters into our own hand instead of trusting God and his word to reach the hearts of people? How can we escape all these things? Hey, by going into his presence and praying. And with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that we're able to endure it. And the last application, if you haven't listened to anything else that I have to say, please listen to this. And the last application is is the greatest and has uh, probably uh, without question the most uh, eternal significance, and that is this. If there was any other way to heaven, then it would have been revealed to us in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there was any other way to find God's forgiveness than when Jesus went to his father and said, is there any other way but this cup that I'm about to drink, please take it from me. If there was a way that you could be good enough to get to heaven, it would have been revealed to us at Gethsemane. Because a father who loves his son would have protected him from the wrath and the judgment and the sin of man on the cross. If there is any other way, God would have told us. But not his will be done, not our will be done, but his. That is why it is such a blasphemous thing for any human being to say that I do not have to repent of my sin, I do not have to believe that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. I do not have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I do not have to believe that he rose again from the dead. I don't have to believe that because I have found another way. It is the most blasphemous thing to say to God who gave his son because it was and is the only way. And that is why you must bow your knee to Jesus. And that is why he is the only name given under heaven to men by which men can be saved. And that is why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but through me. If there was any other way, the word of God would tell us, but there isn't. And we must accept God's way. Because he is God and we are not. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior from the judgment and the wrath of God that comes because of the sin in your life? If you have, praise God. If you haven't, today is the day. If you hear his voice speaking to you, today is the day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit as he goes forth, convicting our hearts of sin and judgment and righteousness. God, it's my prayer today that if there are those who hear these words, who think that there is another way, but through Jesus to get into heaven or find your forgiveness, may they realize today there is no such way. God, we see that in the garden, in the cry of Jesus, if there's any other way, may this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, God, your will be done. And it is the will of God, the plan of God, the foreknowledge of God, the predetermined plan of God that Jesus Christ would come into the world and become sin on our behalf. That he would experience in full the wrath and the judgment of God. And it's no wonder in his humanity that he was filled with dread and anguish as he thought about drinking that disgusting, just gross cup of sin That he would be forsaken by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understood what he was doing. And in courage and with bravery and with a willful, obedient heart, he went to the cross. The Bible says he endured the pain and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him, which includes our salvation. God, my prayer is for those who hear these words that have never trusted in Christ that today would be the day, Father, forgive me for I am a sinner. I've been led to believe that being good or trying to be good or doing good things is all I need to do and hopefully I'll have enough good things and bad at the end of the day and that you'll find that pleasing to you. And I heard your spirit tell me today there's no such truth to that at all, that it's Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised again from the dead. And God, I put my faith and my trust and my hope in Him and Him alone today. I receive Him as my Savior. And the Bible says that I become a child of God to those who believe in His name. And God, I pray for the rest of us who have trusted in Christ at different points in our life, been born again by the will of God, not by our own human efforts, that when we struggle with fear in life, that we go to You and be still and know that You're God, that we enter into Your presence and we sense your will and your perfect plan for our lives. God, may we be, as Jesus is, totally submissive to your will. May we pray as he prayed, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And may you get all the glory and praise as we live a life that is within your will and according to your plans and purpose. In Christ's name, amen.